It's episode 44 of the Improv London podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Moses, and this week's guest is Paul Z. Jackson. Hi, Stuart. (laughs) Hello, Paul. Welcome to the Improv London podcast. Thank you. Perhaps we could start by finding out how you um, how you discovered improv, how you got into improv in, to start with. Sure. I was persuaded to see an improvisation show by my brother, and I was very reluctant to go. <laughs> I thought things should be rehearsed and scripted and directed, and this was clearly none of those. And it uh, featured Jim Sweeney and Steve Steen. And it was terrific. I thought this was uh, fantastic. And I also was very suspicious because I was a journalist at the time. So I went again the next week. <laughs> Just to see if it wasn't a fluke. Just to see if it wasn't a fluke. And it wasn't because they were taking written suggestions from the audience, including mine, and creating scenes, magical, and very uh, contemporary feel to it. Yeah. And very funny. And I used my journalistic card to go and interview them. Brilliant. <laughs> How are you doing this? I asked them. And I said, oh, it's very easy. Um, you simply say yes and and. And I looked disappointed. <laughs> and they said, well, there, there's a book called Impro by Keith Johnston. You can read that and uh, you'll find how it's done. So I bought the book, which is brilliant. If yes. anyone's not read that. Yes, recommended reading. It's a real starting point. And there were, there were some classes being run at the Comedy Store by Kit Hollerback at that time. So I went to one or two of those, and she did some uh, improvisation activities and started to get us onto the stage. But I was living in Cardiff, so I couldn't keep coming to London for all of these exciting treats. So I set up my own improvisation and comedy workshop at the Chapter Arts Centre. And how much experience of this had you got when you set that up? Uh, a full two workshops. Right, nice, nice. You did yeah. the two workshops. Yes. That's, that's and pretty much baseline. That's and read the book. <laughs> seen two shows. <laughs> so, but we were, we were experimental and I put an ad in the paper for whoever wanted to come along and play with comedy. And a group of people did come along and we met week after week. And eventually we were asked by the Chapter Arts Centre Theatre Department to do support as an impro show to... to uh, comedians who were on tour, one of which was Jerry Sadowitz. Wow. So our, f- our first show, I think, was <laughs> supporting Jerry Sadowitz with some impro. And I hadn't really in- intended myself to perform impro, but the rest of the group had never seen it or indeed heard of it. So they <laughs> wanted me on stage as a guarantee that this was not some kind of trick I was playing. <laughs> but what a delightful, elaborate ruse that would have been if it had been if, if only I had. <laughs> But, of course, it, it is real, and it can be done, and we were doing it. And then we played at the Brecon Jazz Festival. I left my newspaper and joined the BBC as a comedy producer. And I suppose part of the reason they gave me that job was because I'd started the improvisation group. Wow. And I'd written some comedy as well in my spare time. And they let me loose producing it for Radio 4 and the World Service and Radio 5 and other stations. And I started working with some of the really good improvisers at that time. Yeah. The Paul Mer- Merton, Jesse Lawrence, Neil Malarkey, and others of that well-known. And, and of course, Sweeney and Steen. was able yeah. to <laughs> repay them for luring me in. 
And in my spare time there at the BBC, I set up another improv performing group because I'd got the taste for it. And that was in Manchester, and it was called Comedy Express. And it had a lot of refugees from Brookside and Coronation Street. Oh, wow. Writers and performers. So they had a great time doing that. Some of them have gone on to fame and fortune. And I'm going to cut this story very, very short. (laughs) After four years of that, I left the BBC and set up my own organisation in Bath and Bristol and started, guess what, another comedy improvisation group. Brilliant. And that included people who are then unknown, who've since gone on to some fame and fortune, such as Rob Brydon, um, Julia Davis, Nighty Night, Ruth Jones, and a guy called Ian, who's the co-writer and co-producer of The Inbetweeners. Wow. I don't think it's coincidence that all of this talent emerged from the group. Yeah. I don't think it's because there was a genius of me producing <laughs> it. But we, cre- we created a very uh, nurturing and supportive environment for these people to try stuff out and yes. learn how to collaborate, learn how to experiment. Yes. And it brought the best out of them. So, yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. So you've obviously had, um, you know, great success at forming these uh, improv groups. Uh, do you have any advice for people who are looking to do the same thing? How, you know, how did it work? Or how, how did you do it? That's a very good question. <laughs> Does that mean you're not quite sure and you're just slightly stalling for time Thank while you time. think of an answer? Because I'm prepared to fill. I'm appreciative of the question. Oh, I see. Fair it enough. Is, it is a good question. <laughs> because the answer's not completely obvious. Ah, but right. there must be some knowledge in there. Yes. Somehow. <laughs> With... All of the groups, we did quite a lot of preparation before we performed. So there were weeks, if not months, of workshopping and getting to know what we were doing so that when we did appear, it was quite competent and professional. Yes. We used impro and other stuff that I was starting to acquire, like Viola Spolin books. So there's a lot of knowledge there that Mm. a new group can tap into. And I would recommend now, although we didn't have the opportunity to do that with my groups, to watch other improvisers, because now there's a fantastic scene, particularly in London, that's got some super stuff and teachers coming over from all over the world. Yes. Um, So what sort of, I don't know, what sort of things were you doing in the workshop? Was this short form? Was this long form? Was this... Started a short form and was pretty much a copy half of what Sweeney and Steen had done and half of what the Comedy Store players were doing. But then we felt it worth it, uh, worth um, developing our own formats and ways of working. So we experimented with new short forms and started doing longer forms. Right. So we had, a, in Manchester, a running soap opera. Oh, brilliant. Which was quite fun. And in uh, Bath, we did an all-woman show called All Made Up and started doing longer and longer pieces. But it was always a mix. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you then, you've taken what might be called traditional improv mm. and you've applied it. Yes. What does applied improvisation mean? Well, it's a, it's a natural step if you follow that path. So I found that I could teach improvisation to performers and had done this with these three groups. Yes. And at the BBC, I taught improvisation in one workshop to fellow 
professionals, colleagues, yeah. anyone from news producers to um, people working on cameras and script editors, a whole range of people, as part of a managerial training course that I was on, right. where we were invited to teach each other something. Oh, that's nice. And it was the only thing I could think of that I could, <laughs> that I could teach anyone. But was, it, went, it went well. Was there resistance? No. Really? None at all. Oh, it was a it was a lovely group. <laughs> they invited us to do this. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It was simply saying, "Okay, I'll, I've got this, and I'll do an hour or forty-five minutes of it." I'm just thinking about my work colleagues, and yes. I'm like, "Lovely as they all are, yeah. and dedicated and talented, there might be some resistance." There might, if you just sprang it on them. This was in the context of a training course right, that okay. we were all on, yeah. so everyone was uh, getting to know each other well. I think the course course leaders were probably desperate by that point <laughs> run out of material so what can you guys do yes peer-to-peer learning that's peer-to-peer very learning. important very we important. must emphasize that and not just yes. you know use it as a way of generating more material there was a, a woman from the brazilian world service who taught us how to do some samba dancing nice for example so you could teach anything yeah, yeah, yeah. And i taught improv and to kind of tuck that experience away thinking okay it's not just actors who seem to enjoy it and maybe get something from it so I started putting on public workshops called Improvisation for Life, and people showed up yeah. and played improvisation games, and we started to think about how that could then be useful for them in their lives. And I suppose the, the obvious applications are things like presentation skills, mm. if you can improvise when you're presenting and not be so scared to depart from the script, that's going to serve you well. Um, team building, the improv activities tend to get people to collaborate well and creativity it fires up the imagination and brings out our creativity so those were the first applications then the next step was wondering if anyone else in the world did this (laughs) (laughs) and it turned out they did (laughs) so I was at a conference for trainers I was making a living as a trainer and facilitator mostly at that time after um, finishing doing comedy production and I went to a trainers conference in America in Florida and there were two other people who were also doing improvisation based workshops for the trainer audience so we got together and in fact we were asked to do an impro show as the cabaret for (laughs) for that conference and we did and that went very well so I got lured back into performing again I did singing, which I remember with some horror even to this day. <laughs> and well, I'm sure you committed to it. I no, committed to it. Thing, I committed it? to yeah. it. I did uh, unexpectedly well in a singing elimination game. Wow. <laughs> Proud moment. <laughs> but the crucial moment was in the bar afterwards when we said, well, there's three of us here. Maybe there's some other people that do this as well. And one of them, uh, Alain Rostan, who was based in California, started an email list thanks to the wonders of the World Wide Web, (laughs) allowing people to find other people with the same crazy ideas as each other, (laughs) put out an invitation, and we found that there were other people that wanted to do this. So we called a conference in 2001, and that was the first conference of what became, it wasn't at that time called, the Applied Improvisation Network, which is a group of people who are interested in how you apply improvisation off the stage. Wow. So... Can you give some, I don't know, maybe go into a little bit of detail about some of the things that we can... What I want to do is I want to make all the improvisers really successful. All the improvisers that listen to this podcast, mm-hmm. they've already got the improv skills. I would like you to be able to 
turn them into successful people in business. Can you do that for me? How long we got? <laughs> well, feedback from the listeners has been that they've wanted slightly shorter episodes, so uh, <laughs> maybe one or two pointers. One or two pointers. <laughs> I suppose the first point is that there are livings to be made by people who are skilled improvisers who are willing to teach it and share it with other people who are not going to be stage performers. Right. So these are necessary skills. The improvisation skills are important skills in everyday life. How many conversations do you have each day? Mm, How many of them are scripted? Very few. Very few. Less less than I would like. Less than one might like. (laughs) So we have to be prepared to improvise. We make stuff up all day. Even in our walk to work, we don't follow exactly the same footsteps usually. We have to adapt and change given the circumstances around us. And these are things that improvisers are generally quite good at if they're skilled improvisers and know some ways to practice if they know some activities or are able to create activities Ah, that people can practice the skills in. Yes. And some of the activities serve as metaphors for life as well. So I think if you've got those three components, you've got the building blocks of being able to teach improvisation and perhaps make a living from that in a world that that needs more people being creative, more people being collaborative, and more people being prepared to depart from the plan or the script, because the plan or the script, as we know, doesn't always work out quite how you're expecting. Yes, in an uncertain world, the ability to improvise is going to stand you in good stead. Well, that says it. That says what I was just trying to say, (laughs) only more succinctly and neatly. Damn. Uh, I've just, you know, I've been trained as an improviser. Yes. There's an increasing recognition in the world of organisations that it is an uncertain world. A lot of organisational theory was built up on the idea that it was a very mechanical world and things would go in a certain engineered, predictable way. And that built us bridges and canals and flies aeroplanes. But it's not so good where people are <laughs> trying to work with each other yes. or where we're dealing with really difficult, world-important, uh, complex problems like climate change, for example. We need those skills for the VUCA world. That stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity of general conditions and situations. Yes. And we, <laughs> we increasingly recognise that we increasingly face such settings. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so when you're training people in, uh, you know, improv, applied improv skills, what's one of your favourite exercises? That's another good... (laughs) Yeah, um, I did a questionnaire recently and uh, a couple of people did suggest that I sent uh, the interviewee the questions beforehand so they'd have a chance to prepare. Um, I'm not actually that organised to know what I'm going to ask beforehand. I wouldn't be that organised to know what I was going to ask. So so, so I'm glad we didn't both waste a lot of time doing that. The workshops really are built up with the sequence of things. So it's difficult to pick this activity as being the, the crucial one or the one that always turns it around. And they, they go, my workshops go from complete safety and building people's confidence through to doing much more exotic and elaborate things towards the end when they're ready. Right. There is a school of thought that likes to throw people in at the deep end. Yes. And I find that leads to drowning. Yes. 
so I don't do that. No, fair enough. <laughs> but there are there are different schools of thought on how to how best to teach improvisation. Um, I'm interested in what people think they're going to apply it to, um, what context they're coming from, and find out what they already know about improvisation, either yes. cognitively, yes. so they may have heard about it, they may have seen some or read some, or in their own experience. We talked about conversations and other things that people are already improvisational at, and then identify some of the skills that they're already using and put a vocabulary to it. Right. So we're articulating existing skills and yes. then improving them with a whole range of activities, many of which uh, all the listeners will be familiar with, and <laughs> some, some of which I've devised myself. <laughs> but putting them in the right order, I think that's the skill. Yes, no, and I can, I can see that, how you build up. Yeah, you've got to build trust and safety in the room um, so people feel comfortable. And because even just turning up, I say this quite a lot on the podcast, but even just turning up to an improv session, that's a big step. It is, which is really odd. And it must be because there's been a lot of bad improvisation teaching. Because <laughs> why should you be any more concerned about turning up to an improvisation workshop than a woodwork workshop or a book club or a film club or does, nature walks? People are does, scared by the word. Um, are they scared by the word or is it because they are going to get up in front of people and have to make things up and they think they can't do it? Well, they don't have to get up in front of people and make things up because we're not doing theatre improv. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's a misconception, I think, that yes. comes from confusing theatre with improvisation. Yeah. So improvisation is a much bigger concept than theatre. Well, we have a Venn diagram. <laughs> they, they overlap. And theatre is one of the applications of improvisational skills. And it's a very prominent and visible one, and it's often the one that brings people in because yes. they've seen a show or they've seen whose line is it anyway, and they assume that the bit that's the improvisation is getting up in front of people and making stuff up. Yes, and, and being funny. And being funny, and facing the right direction, <laughs> people being able to hear what you're saying, all of which are important stagecraft matters. Yes, but not many of them are that are that crucial for improvisation in the world. Yeah. They might be, uh, and at times they are, but I wouldn't start from there. No. And so it's giving people the sense that we're not here to recreate a, an inferior version of whose life is unless they want to. It's to learn and develop some skills that everyone has some of to some extent and apply them to what you want to apply them to, right. which might be better meetings at work or feeling more confidence about the next job you're going for or being more sociable with strangers. These are the sorts of things people come to develop in the improvisation classes at the Improvisation Academy, which is where we teach this stuff. <laughs> so do you, uh, is, is it group work? Is it working in pairs? I'm just trying to yes. visualise how it works if you're not getting people up on the stage. Yes, there's no stage right. for people to get up on, so there's no getting up on the stage. Oh, I don't know if I fancy that, actually. I was, I was on board until I heard there wasn't a stage. Yeah. You can take it away, go onto your own stage. And, of course, lots of performers of improvisation come along to these sessions because they're looking for the entry into the, the world of work, organisational work. But, yeah, it would be circle of people talking to each other, then we'd do some things in pairs, do some things in bigger groups, games where you're moving across the room, oh, yeah, everyone's yeah. moving around at the same time. Yes. And it, it occurred to me after doing it for a while that, that, that was the stuff I loved. Right, yes. And really felt at home with. And I always got uneasy when it was, and now go on the stage right. and do a scene. Yeah. 
well, why? I'm not, I'm not actually trying to become an actor or an improvising performer. I, th- I think we should distinguish there between maybe improv, which is that, yes. and which I love, yes. particularly to watch, and improvisation, ah. which is all the other stuff that, of which improv is a subset. Yes, that's a really interesting distinction, because I've only ever done performance improv. Yes. And performance has always been the goal. Yes. Which is fine. Yeah. And that that's probably still the majority pursuit and majority understanding of um, improvisation. But applied improvisation and the applied improvisation network has really grasped this distinction and saying, Okay, it's on stage, that's lovely. Yes. And many of us learnt through theatrical roots, including myself, although I was never of the theatre in that way. <laughs> but I learned things about organisations and can see where some of these skills and ideas really apply there. So we can export them and change them a bit. Yes. And they do need to be changed a bit. So, for example, yes and. You don't want to be saying yes and if somebody invites you into a dangerous (laughs) thing in the world. It would make a tremendous scene if it was on stage. Yes. And we want to see people in danger and peril and how they deal with it. Yes. Off stage, we'd rather be... In less danger. <laughs> yes. More, yes more, more comfort, more enjoyment. <laughs> so the same answer to the same offer works on stage and doesn't work off stage. Right. So you have to become immediately sensitive to context. That's interesting. When do we use this idea and when don't we? Yes. So in my workshops, I will get people to experience yes and, and also to experience no or simple yes, and ask them, when, when's a good time to use no? When's a good time to use yes? When does yes and come into fashion? Ah. They are, well, if we're being creative in a safe space, we're brainstorming or coming up with ideas, yes and is good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if it's, my child wants to cross a road, can I cross the road now, Dad? Then no. <laughs> it's, it's a lot better answer, because it's yes. going to lead to a lot less <laughs> tragic mess. Yes, whereas... When you're performing, that yes. Oh, you see, yeah, even when you're performing, there's the well, you're yes ending the reality of the situation, but you're not necessarily yes ending the request from the child to cross the road on their own. I'm very familiar with that distinction. But if you're teaching improvisation, as I do, to people who are working in um, climate disaster areas, so climate preparedness and disaster relief, they think that yes if they're hearing the concept of yes, means saying yes to things. Right, yes. And it does. Yeah. We're now using it in a jargon way, saying it, it doesn't mean agreement, it means acceptance. <laughs> well, actually, that's not quite right. We're making it mean that. Right, yes. And we should call it something else, like acceptance. Yes. Yes, so I'm accepting the reality. That's fine. Yes. Why wouldn't you accept the reality? In the world, you have to accept reality. <laughs> On stage, because it's... In the imaginary world, you don't have to accept the reality. So that becomes an interesting thing to talk about. But it's of no use to people outside of the stage. It's yeah. an interesting distinction, yes. Apart from people who are in denial about how the world is. <laughs> that's, that's another category again. Are but you we, able we, to we, help them? We have medicine and, <laughs> and, and treatments. For that. So, no, seriously, I think most people, most of the time, aren't having a struggle of accepting reality. Yeah. That's a table. Yes, of course it is. 
Whereas on stage, that's a table. No, it's a shit. Yeah. yeah horrible, no, I don't know why I, find, I shouldn't have scene. laughed at that. That was really... <laughs> You've seen that one, have you? Well, you know, it happens more than... I just... Yeah, yeah. Sorry, you were saying... Yeah. So the, uh, the, the point is that there are things that you learn in a theatrical impro workshop that don't immediately make any sense outside of that. So we have to think carefully about what we're doing as applied improvisers, which is what the network is there to support. Cool. Uh, you mentioned before that you have uh, complex and exotic exercises. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not asking you to share trade secrets, but <laughs> what might be a, a complex and exotic exercise that people can try? I don't know. Okay. Uh, this, this is one that's in one of my books and that I use a lot. And it's, not, it's clearly not theatrical, so it's a nice example of what we're talking about that you invite people who are all in the room together to form subgroups or, or categories. So this is called Category Cruncher. And you just uh, set up the rule that uh, a group has to be at least two people, so you can't be on your own, and it can't be everyone. So there have to be at least two groups. And you'll call out a category like um, siblings or food or transport. And people have to work out which group they want to be in with some other people that's a subcategory of that. So it could be, we're the people with exactly three brothers, oh. or we're the ones with two sisters, or we're the ones that hate all our siblings. <laughs> so it's an exercise in improvisational self-organisation. Right, yes. And then there's a debrief. You discuss what's happened afterwards. Yes. That might be about how do you get to include people and how do you exclude people? Did you like being in a pretty exclusive club? Or yes. were you happier when there was lots of us? So we start getting some insights into how maybe we operate in our company. Yes. Or how easy is it to form a different group once you've committed to the first one. Yes. I like travelling by bike, but I hear that the canal people over there are having a good time, so <laughs> I might, might be tempted to join them. So recently you had uh, an applied improvisation uh, network conference in Oxford, I That's believe. That's right. First time that the conference has been to the UK. Oh, right. After starting in 2001, 2002. Yeah. It's been all over the world, in different parts of North America and Europe at least, and conferences in Asia as well. And first time in the UK. Wow. That's just such a marvellous opportunity when you get 200 improvisers together who want to pursue a subject and yeah. are, are very accepting and responsive to each other. Yes. The atmosphere is incredible. Yeah, the yeah. learning is rich. Yes. And the friendships are deep. <laughs> that sounds like my ideal conference. Come along. <laughs> so what sort of things, I mean, how, how does it work? What sort, of, what sort of things did people get up to? They see a whole range of really great facilitators running their workshops. People are very generous about sharing what they've been doing. So there's some case studies of the different applications. They'll share trade secrets as well of you know, what are wow. you charging, how do you market. Ah, right, yes. Lots yes. of business-to-business -business clustering and groupings of let's do something together and set up a project. And we talk about these concepts of what, we had a session this time, what do we mean when we say yes and? Right. And that's prompted some of the thoughts that we've been discussing here. Yeah. Um, we had what are some different forms of applied theatre. So there's things like playback and forum theatre as well as applied in, as well as um, comedy improvisation for example so applied theatre mm. what, what? that's actually an academic yeah. discipline that's in the universities is it yeah of 
when you apply theatre. So psychodrama, drama therapy, that's uh, amongst the healing arts, uh, playback to show people their lives in communities, forum theatre developed by Augusto Boal as a political uh, revolutionary tool in South America. Right. So incredible range of what you can do with, yeah. with theatre. And improvisation has this important and significant overlap yes. with that. And we have performances in the evenings of uh, improvisational shows, some by people that we bring in and display what the local country has to offer, yeah. and the AIN All-Stars, because we've got this rich body of talented performers, they'll do an impromptu show together yeah. for the rest of us. Wow. What sort, of, what sort of stuff did they do this time? This time they divided it into continental groups. Right. So we could see the different flavours from the different oh, parts of the world. Yes. Although the one Brazilian found himself apparently living in Canada. So <laughs> it wasn't a precise <laughs> Yes, I mean, I don't want to stereotype all Canadians and all Brazilians, but they're not stereotypically necessarily what you'd think of as a, a close match. They conjured stuff. up a good scene. <laughs> I'm sure they did, I'm sure they did. Uh, and it's nice to see diversity exactly. with people uh, before. A, there are a lot of conversations about diversity and inclusion. And the next conference will be in Los Angeles and Irvine, California in August 2017. Wow. So that sounds very exciting. It will be. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so if people want to learn more about applied improvisation, what's the first step? They can join the Applied Improvisation Network for free at appliedimprovisation.network. Fill out a form, tell us your interests, and then you get part of that. There's a Facebook group of Applied Improvisation Network, and if you're in London or the UK, there are local groups that meet roughly monthly. The London group meets each month in London. <laughs> Very good place, that. Um, okay, so last question. Um, if there was one piece of advice uh, that you could share or one lesson that you've learned from either applied improvisation or performance improvisation, what would you put be? Uh, have a go. Have a go. Have a go, yes. You discover things by doing them. So it's okay to think about them and practice and prepare for them, but doing them is where you really get the enjoyment, the learning and the adventure. Brilliant. That's an excellent message. Thank you very much for coming on the Improv London podcast. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you. I made this. That's improv! <laughs>